We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app welcome to overnight america with ryan recker sponsored by michael's flooring the flooring experts michael's flooring outlet.com on the voice of st louis kmox And welcome to the Night America. Wow. Always a wow at a moment like that. Uh, welcome to the start of the week. A few things that we do on Mondays, including our friend Richard Bino is going to join us. We got some things that are going on today that we go back and look. And some of the times we follow the same guidelines, the same playbook of political history. So it's always fun to... Welcome Rich on for a few segments on Monday. We'll do that a little bit later too. And next hour, I got an awesome story for you. His name is Ed Hagem. He's the author of a book called On the Road Less Traveled. When he was a very young child, his dad kidnapped him, said that his mom had died, and then his dad, being neglectful, abandoned him. He spent all his time as a kid in orphanages. Later, as an adult, grew up and found out that his mom was still alive. It's a crazy story that Ed Hagem is going to share with us in the next hour. Uh, his book, The Road Less, On the Road Less Traveled. Really looking forward to that one. I wanted to just point out something my wife told me today. And I don't know if this is just typical dad stuff, but we were watching a show. It was the new Superman show that's on WB. And I didn't think I would enjoy this show, but I ended up really liking it. Superman and Lois go back to the old uh, Kansas home after his mom passes away, and they decide to set up roots there. So Superman and Lois have two kids, both in high school. One turns out to have powers, and I'm not really ruining anything. This is all laid out in the first episode, so I'm not trying to spoil anything. But I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, wow, Superman's such a good dad. And every episode we watch, I'm thinking, wow, he really handled that nice. What a great dad, that Superman. Just the way that he tries to balance him, you know, saving the world and being a father at the same time. And my wife looks over and says, you have a dad crush on Superman. Now, I've heard of man crushes, man crushes being that as a guy, you say, oh, yeah, I, that's a that's a handsome, uh, handsome guy over there. Or, you know, you look at an actor or whatever and say, oh, that's nice. Uh, well. But I've never <laughs> I've never heard of a dad crush as in <laughs> instead of a man crush, a dad crush. First time I've heard that. Maybe this is just unique to us. But I got to say, uh, Superman is uh, one fine father. 
He is something else, uh, in the, at least the depiction of that show. Why do I get that? It's just a dad thing. I believe it happens when you start identifying with the traits, when you start to recognize and say, oh, that's such a great way to handle it, or he loves his kids. It makes you feel all warm and cuddly inside. It's, I think, something only dads can understand, right? <laughs> Dad crush. <laughs> Okay, Moex.com. There's this one story. First seven day a week mass vaccination site opening in St. Louis next month. You actually heard it in the news there with Sean just a couple of minutes ago. But the state of Missouri and Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, will be opening up new mass vaccination program in St. Louis, launching on April 7th. They say that a total of 168,000 vaccinations will be given over the course of those seven days, 3,000 people a day. Um, how does that work out math wise? How, what am I not understanding? So seven days, 3000 people a day, that should be 21,000 vaccinations, right? Uh, uh, total for over the course of the days. No, am I doing that wrong? How did they get 168,000? Maybe they're counting double ups as in future shipments that will be coming for the second dose. So the max vaccination site will operate 6 a.m. to uh, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. seven days a week. Eligible, reg- uh, eligible residents identified through the vaccine navigator website, or you can call the phone number, the 877-435-8411. Uh, types of vaccination administrators will vary from week to week. It's kind of like the stock at Aldi when you go and shop groceries. If you shop there, you just don't know what you're going to get when you walk in there because they, you know, discount cheap. That's given. But you don't know if they're going to have that one item you really like. Some weeks they have it, some weeks they don't. So there's that one vaccine you really like. You don't know what you're getting. It's going to be a grab bag in there. Or maybe they can make it fun and get one of those giant spinning wheels. So when you walk through the door, there'll be, it's almost like a game show. You spin the wheel and the thing starts clicking and wherever the little arrow lands, that's the vaccine you get for the day. Come on, Moderna. Come on, Moderna. Go, Moderna. Oh, Johnson & Johnson. So sorry. I wonder if it's going to be one of those deals. Probably not. Rich Rubino, author of American Politics on the Rocks, right after the break. It's Overnight America, KMOX. Next Level Listening. News Radio, 1120 AM, 98.7 FM, KMOX, the voice of St. Louis. Welcome back to Overnight America. And joining us regularly on Mondays is the author of American Politics on the Rocks, politi-geek.com. Rich Rubino, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Ryan. Right off the bat, producer Mike had a great question, and I'm going to lead off with this one because it's actually a pretty good one. He said that if you can add a fifth face to Mount Rushmore, who do you think that president should be? Oh, interesting. That's a a great question. Um, I would say for the unfinished presidency, I would put uh, probably uh, James Garfield, I guess, would be one that I would put up because I think he probably would have been a great president had he actually lived and not been assassinated. So that's one that I would probably put up there. Um, I'm trying to think who else I would put up there. Um, I guess, theoretically, you could put, um, if you wanted to put some of the presidents from the Articles of Confederation or Perpetual Union up, why not put up John Hanson, just so people say, who is John Hanson? Then people figure <laughs> out that there actually was a presidency under the Articles of Confederation or Perpetual Union. Who is John Hanson? It sounds like a Jeopardy answer, doesn't it? Well, that would get people to actually um, to actually talk about it, or perhaps you know, just if you wanted to kind of you know put up somebody else, maybe a pop culture figure, maybe somebody who's really kind of captured the hearts and minds of the American people. How about Jay Wall from Jersey Shore? 
<laughs> okay, here's a harder question. So you have the four presidents on Mount Rushmore, but one has to be eliminated because, you know, budget cuts. They can't afford that fourth place anymore. So who's the weakest link of those four? So what do you, how do you want to do to cut it down? <laughs> um, I would say, um, what they do is they just, they just put a giant tarp over one of the faces. And so you can't look at it anymore. <laughs> Probably Theodore Roosevelt, because if you look at, you know, his achievements, I mean, he's certainly known for conservation. He's known for ending the jet, the uh, Japanese Russo war. But I think compared to the other presidents, he's usually not considered one of the top tier. He's usually considered more sixth or seventh, but you know, he's up there, so he's probably the one that's probably, that I think probably I would I would take up, and I would assume the vast majority of historians would probably take him off as well. You think so? Okay, so that's a, not a bad one, in fact. So here we are today, and he's the only one with the mustache up there, too, so I think we need to uh, let people know that it's probably mustache discrimination, facial hair <laughs> discrimination going on. Well, well, if you Mount wanted Rushmore. to really go full bear, put, put Benjamin Harrison up because he had the beard, or put Chester A. Arthur up because he had the mutton tops. Oh, that's great. So let's uh, let's <laughs> let's put a, a a cap in that because one day, who knows, there may be budget cuts, and we'll just say no one could, is allowed to look at it anymore. Or it could be one of those deals where if we don't reach a deal, it's like kind of one of those sunset clauses that are in some piece of legislation yes, that yes. makes the parties get along with each other. So if you don't get along, we're going to cover up one of the faces on Mount Rushmore. And then eventually <laughs> they don't get along and then they're forced by law to cover up one of them. Okay. If people, uh, I've never seen Mount Rushmore in person. I hope one day I'll be able to. Have you ever traveled and seen it? No, I have not. I know it's in a beautiful area of uh, South Dakota, but I've not seen it personally. Yeah, well, uh, there's all kinds of different movies and things that have it depicted in there. I feel like I've been there through that, but that's not what really we wanted to talk to you about. I just thought it was a good <laughs> question. So, Oh, the, no, I agree. I agree. I don't know if you saw that story down in Texas. So there's this GOP candidate oh, yeah. that's running for office, a congressional seat, and he's dressing up like a cowboy. and He's like doing all this cowboy stuff and they're calling him out pretty quick. You know, he's like a guy from New Jersey. He's no <laughs> cowboy. And it brings up questions about pandering because this is a pretty clear case of pandering in order to try to get some sort of political favor. So I'm sure there's a lot of examples of pandering over the years in politics. Oh, yes. I mean, and certainly, you know, Texas, the cowboy hat is certainly one thing that um, a lot of politicians, he's certainly not the first. He's obviously taken it to an extreme. But he's not the first person ever to do that. I mean, certainly you can look at pictures. You can see, you know, you can see pictures of Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush. You can see pictures of Bill Clinton when they all go to Texas. They wear a cowboy hat. I guess they think that everybody in Texas is somehow a cowboy. It's actually a very small minority of people that actually are cowboys. But um, I guess that's kind of the stereotype people that don't live in Texas have is that everyone in Texas is a cowboy, a cattle rancher, or something to that effect. But mm-hmm. it does happen, and usually when politicians pander to that extreme, they kind of get called out upon it. I remember a couple examples. One of them is John Kerry. Back in 2004, John Kerry was trying to show that he was a hunter. So I remember he walked into a um, he walked into a shop and he goes he sp- tried to speak in this rural dialect and he says is this where I can get me a hunting license and um, <laughs> it was just not what you expect from a patrician you know from Boston to actually be speaking like that um, Mitt Romney speaking of hunting it's there's something to do with Massachusetts politicians trying to pander uh, Mitt Romney was in when he was running in 2007 um, he was talking about how he went hunting. And he said, you know, um, he said, I'm a lifelong hunter. Well, a couple of days later, they revealed that he'd hunted twice in his life. One time when he was about eight years old. And the other time as part of the Republican Governors Association. So technically, <laughs> if you hunt twice in your life, 
I guess that makes you a lifelong hunter. Um, and then he said, well, I hunt, you know, essentially small varmints, if you will. But it's funny because it never really works. If polit- It's one thing, if, if you, someone like FDR, for example, he came from a very patrician class, but he never kind of tried to, you know, speak to in kind of, he never tried to speak in kind of a blue-collar dialect. He continued to speak the way he spoke. And I don't think that, well, Donald Trump's, and Donald Trump is another example. You know, Donald Trump does not try to, you know, pretend that he, Donald Trump did not kind of try to pretend that he was necessarily blue collar. He would actually, he would actually kind of star, you know, the fact that he was from Mar-a-Lago and how much money, saying, you know, I'm rich. I think for the most part, voters appreciate that. They don't necessarily like when you try to pander, especially if it comes off as ungenuine. And you know, it's interesting when Paul Songus was running back in 1992. I remember he he was running against Bill Clinton, and Paul Songus that year was running on the what I would, what I call root canal economics. He wanted to essentially raise taxes, he wanted to raise gasoline taxes, and he wanted to cut spending. So um, not something that there's much of a constituency for, but Bill Clinton was running against him with proposing a middle-class tax cut. And, when he, and also when he, in the Connecticut, um, Bill Clinton came and he talked about there was this, there was this, um, there was a Seawolf nuclear submarine program that was essentially, um, there was a, that was a, that was essentially being kind of you know vanishing from the pages of time. And Bill Clinton said that he would essentially put some put some sort of a scaled back version of it. So Paul Songus, who has kind of he has he he's a Greek, uh, he's he's Greek. He's from Lowell, Massachusetts, and he has he has somewhat of an accent. He had a little bit of um, somehow it's Thomas time. It's it's hard to kind of hear what he was saying. So he holds up a panda bear, and when he's trying to a panda bear rather. And he uh, calls up a panda bear, and he calls it a panda bear, and he's trying to say that Bill Clinton is um, a panda bear, and he deserves a panda bear reward. But when people, but people couldn't quite get out his R because he had a little problem saying the R. So the next day, people are saying, "Why is he holding up a panda bear?" So it backfired on him. But that was his ultimate strategy: was to say that I'm telling you how it is, and Bill Clinton is trying to um, pander to you. But obviously, that panda bear um, prop did not quite work out for him. Uh huh. Well, let me point out just one pandering that we saw here in Missouri when that open Senate seat, the one that Claire McCaskill lost yep. and Josh Hawley ended up winning. It was something that I pointed out on the show, just how ridiculous, because that's what the hunting thing really <laughs> brought me so many memories of this because they would go out there. And I remember Josh Hawley, while he was a candidate, showing him holding up a rifle and he's wearing his hunter's outfit. And you can still see the creases as they got it off the rack. You can tell he's never once worn anything <laughs> close to that. So it's funny when you try to identify as part of a group, and then that group could look at it and automatically tell that shenanigans. There's nothing to what they're trying to do. And there's something about there's something I guess about hunting um, too. You know, I don't know why politicians try necessarily to do it because you know um, unless you really do come from that background. And some people, by the way, can pull off. The, the, the hunting and the ranching thing, for example, in Lyndon Johnson's case, he actually did have a ranch in Texas, so he could actually kind of go home to that ranch. He could act, if he actually wore a cowboy hat, which he did when he was on the ranch, it would actually come off sometimes as genuine that he was doing it because he actually did have that. But if you're from, you know, if you're from Massachusetts and you're trying to pretend that you're a hunter, you're trying to pretend that you're a cowboy. I know John Kennedy, the senator from, not the president, but the senator from Louisiana, if you listen to some tapes of him in about 2004, when he was a Democrat, and he actually supported John Kerry, he used to be a Democrat, he became a Republican, but his accent was not nearly as thick as it is right now. I mean, this is someone who's a Rhodes Scholar, but now he's, you know, a lot of folks say, you know, isn't he kind of pandering because basically he's created some more of an accent than he used to have, 
And if you listen to him now, you're like, wow, you know, he really sounds like he's from the country. But, you know, 15 years ago, he does not the way he sounded. Oh, yeah. Hillary Clinton got caught going in the South and, and really playing up the accent. Oh, oh and, and Ali, the thing yes, that I love. Yes, I, got, I, I am gonna... in no ways tired. I remember her saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and the hot sauce incident. Uh, there's a lot of pandering when. Um, oh, the other one is you see politicians do this. Local politicians are really good at doing this. So what they'll do is when it's getting close to Election Day, they'll show up at a church somewhere and like <laughs> out of nowhere. They've never attended that church ever, <laughs> but they want to go sing a church solo. So we have had a politician here, Steve Stanger, who, by the way, now sits in federal prison for uh, all the corruption that uh, conducted by him in this area. But um, so St. Louis County doesn't really have like a, the person that oversees the county. They call him a county executive. Steve Stanger was the head of that, but really all kinds of issues with him. But right before he was reelected, starts showing up at predominantly black churches singing Amazing Grace. And I remember his opponents looking at that saying, he doesn't look like he spent a day in church in his whole <laughs> life. And you know, these videos getting out there. But people use churches that way, too. A lot of pandering goes down. Oh, absolutely. And some, it's funny, because some, like Bill Clinton, for example, he would go to African-American churches, and he was just natural. He would, sometimes he would go up and he would speak. There's a great speech in him delivering in Memphis back in, I think it was, 94, one of the greatest speeches he gave. But people really kind of, you know, um, listened to him, and he really was able to kind of um, speak to that crowd. He was very good at it. But um, other politics, he was actually somebody who was kind of be, who was very good at speaking to whatever the crowd is. You know, if he's speaking to the AFL-CIO, if he's speaking to business organizations, he's very good with that crowd. But then if he's speaking with labor, he can be very good with that crowd as well. He's someone who's just generally, I think, his speaking style, he can kind of play up to whatever the audience is. But other politicians, obviously, it does not necessarily um, bode well for them. And sometimes they'll kind of, you know, stick to a script. But obviously, when they really start to pander um, or when they say things that, you know, they know that they, they that you know that they didn't believe six months ago or nine months ago. I know Mitt Romney, for example, uh, was trying to say he was severely conservative when he was running for president. But his opponents immediately pointed out that when he ran for United States Senate, when he ran, for, he, was, he said he'd be more liberal than Ted Kennedy on certain issues. <laughs> when he ran for governor a few days before the election, he said, I'm a progressive type of a guy. So you could tell that when he was saying, you know, I'm severely conservative, that he was essentially pandering to a certain um, constituency, and it didn't necessarily uh, work out for well, well for him. Oh, another example, Al Gore. Al Gore back in 1988, and this is true, Al Gore actually, his father did have a tobacco farm, and he actually did work on his tobacco farm in, in Carthage, Tennessee. So he was campaigning for president, and he was in North Carolina. And you can actually see this on YouTube. But he gives this really southern, he had a southern accent, and he says, I've sold it. You know, I've worked on it. And he's talking about how he'd worked on tobacco and um, how, how he worked in the tobacco farm. And it became, you know, just something that um, actually really worked for him because on Super Tuesday that year, he basically did very well in the southern, in many of those southern states. He won Tennessee, he won North Carolina, he won Arkansas. But when Bill Clinton became president, Bill Clinton made smoking an issue. And Al Gore was on the hustings talking about how bad smoking was. And he was talking about how his sister had died from smoking in 1984. And then immediately his opponents pulled out this tape from 1988 when he was running as a Southern Democrat and talking about, you know, essentially starring the fact that he was a tobacco farmer. Oh, of course. With farming, that's another big one, too. It's great. And here in Missouri, what you see during the season, if they're trying to pander to the middle of the state, they don't say Missouri. They say Missouri. <laughs> Everything's Missouri. They get a southern draw. Missouri. And Claire McCaskill did that. One of her last ditch efforts when she was trying to regain her Senate seat 
and ultimately losing to Josh Hawley here. She was running these campaign ads that were here in Missouri, and it was some guy, and they were like, with the big draw, or she's not one of those crazy, loony Democrats. Uh, she's from Missouri. You know, they're playing this off, like, you know how those political ads where it's just two every regular day guys talking to each other, just like how they would normally talk if there were no microphones in front of them. One of those type of ads. Very uh, much pandering. So, you know, I don't hear Missouri much in St. Louis. Maybe I haven't traveled much out of the area, but if I did, I would expect to hear it based on the political ads I've listened to. So do you mind holding on after the break? There's a few other things I'd love to talk to you about. Some of the things that are in the news, a lot of people talk about infrastructure overhauls, but in general, presidents have had some pretty ambitious projects. So maybe we can go through some of those. And if people wanted to find you online, where can they look you up? Yep. Just go to Twitter and type in Rich Rubino, Paul, P-O-L. Go to Facebook and type in Rich, last name Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O, or go to www.polita-geek.com. Great. Rich Rubino continues. We'll take a look at your weather after the break, too. It's Overnight America, KMOX. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. News Radio KMOX, the home of the Cardinals. Author of American Politics on the Rocks, Rich Rubino. I was talking to producer Mike during the break. And he was so impressed that you put Jay Wow on the short list for Mount Rushmore. <laughs> he, he said that if you were in the Jersey Shore, your nickname would be, uh, what was it, Producer Mike? I can't remember. You would have something along the lines of, uh, I, I don't I know what it is. Arbino. Arbino. That's a good oh, one. Oh, yes. Yes, that Ar- would that would definitely work. You should get an endorsement for your next book from someone on the Jersey Shore. That would be a huge get. You know, I've actually, I've been thinking about doing that. It's a matter of how I get access to them or something to that effect. Or I was thinking of just somebody that's just completely alternative to politics. That people would look at that and then there'd be all these people, very serious people. And all of a sudden they'd be like, what? Something like that. I think that would actually, that would definitely sell books. If all of a sudden, you know, there was Jay Wall or Marilyn Manson, somebody like that. <laughs> Marilyn Manson might look for an opportunity to get out of the the news cycle that he's currently in with all of the allegations against him. But let's uh, go back to politics here for a moment. We heard in the last couple of days that the Biden administration is thinking about another stimulus package and thinking about more or less. Uh, what I forgot how much three, four trillion or whatever it would take for an infrastructure overhaul in the United States. And we've already heard about different four trillion ideas yeah. that. Four trillion. That's a lot of money. Ambitious. Uh, I think going back as long as I can remember, presidents have talked about infrastructure as a need, but not a lot has been done in that sense. And it makes me wonder some of the past ambitious projects 
of presidents, ones that are of that scale. It might not have to meet the four trillion marker, but still something that took a lot of time and resources, but something they ultimately committed to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And certainly, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, um, you know, view the president as the leader of the country. But of course, the president is only the head of one branch and not the most important branch necessarily. So in order to get much done, I mean, obviously, there are executive orders, there are minor things you can do. But in order for something to be sustainable, you have to work with the United States Congress to do that. And the fact of the matter is that Joe Biden does not have an overwhelming majority. And it usually has been presidents who have been able to accomplish um, essentially what they've campaigned on. They have members of their own party in both the House and the Senate. You know, you can go back to certainly Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. He campaigned um, on certainly he actually had campaigned on a very conservative platform, a balanced budget. His vice president, Levi, his vice president uh, John Ince Garner, had said that Herbert Hoover was on the road towards socialism. But then when he actually became president, you had the New Deal, um, and you had, a, you had a litany of social programs that passed through a Democratic Congress. The problem Roosevelt had was the Southern Democrats, who tried to um, oppose him on just about everything, but he was able to get a lot through that first term. His second term, um, it kind of it was kind of a transmogrification in luck, in many respects, because he tried to pack the Supreme Court. Essentially, the Supreme Court was viewing Nolan Void some of his proposals. So he came in and he said, why don't we have a proposal whereby essentially we could have more, more members of the Supreme Court because there's nothing in the Constitution that specifies nine, but that never really got through. And also in his second term, he tried fiscal austerity, which helped to lead to a recession. So his second term became a disaster. Another president who actually accomplished quite a bit in those first two years was Lyndon Johnson. Um, Lyndon Johnson, of course, had an overwhelming House, an overwhelming Senate who were Democrats. His problem, of course, like Roosevelt's, was with conservative Democrats. And interesting, at the time, he came in, and part of what he wanted to do was the unfinished agenda of John F. Kennedy. And I know you look at this, it's, it's very different today, but at the time, the Democrats were in favor of a tax cut, and John F. Kennedy had proposed it, and Republicans like Barry Goldwater had come out, had were were opposed to the idea. Dwight Eisenhower said it would be it would essentially put the country in bankruptcy. But Lyndon Johnson got it through the United States House, United States Senate, and he did it with many Republican um, and conservative Democrat like Harry Byrd from Virginia opposition. But if you look what he did in '64, '65. There's really no time like it. You had Medicare, Civil Rights Act. Um, you had the beginning of the war on poverty, elementary and secondary education reauthorization. Um, you had um, this is the Rad Extermination Act. This all happened in 64, 65. But the second two years, very little got done of his domestic agenda because Vietnam essentially enveloped the rest of his presidency. Um, certainly, Richard Nixon. Nixon had Nixon came in and he had member. He had both the House and the Senate being controlled by Democrats, and there wasn't much that he could do domestically, nor did he really want to, because he was always a he was always a foreign policy president. He, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, you know, were basically. Viewed, viewed, viewed domestic politics as kind of necessary evil. Lyndon Johnson, I think, viewed foreign policy as a necessary evil. Um, but in Nixon's case, you know, certainly there was the opening up to China. This isn't something he'd necessarily really run on. But there was the um, there was certainly the START treaty um, with the Soviet Union. There was detente. He was able to get a lot of that done through executive agreement, not necessarily by working with the United States House and the United States Senate. Uh, Ronald Reagan certainly, when he campaigned, he said, "I'm going to balance the budget." I'm going to cut taxes, and I'm going to increase military spending. And, of course, he had a Democrat in both House and, House and the Senate, but he had, the blue, he had what today would be the Blue Dog Democrats. At the time, they were the Bull Weevil Democrats, folks like Charlie Stenholm from Texas, and they were able to get his tax cut plan through. 
Um, he was able to increase the military budget, but of course he was not able to balance the budget. Um, and then Bill Clinton, certainly when he came in, it's interesting because his um, budget proposal passed, even though he had Democrats, Democrats, he had Democrats in both the House and the Senate, literally by one vote in the House, one vote in the Senate. But he also had a stimulus package, and he was not able to even get that through. And for that matter, his health care plan didn't even come to a vote his first two years in office. But his second two years in office, when the Republicans took control, they actually worked together on a lot of things. They worked on welfare reform, um, the reauthorization of the Clean Water Act, Kennedy Kassebaum. Clinton was able to increase minimum wage with Republican crossover support. In 97, they passed the first, ba- they passed the first balanced budget act basically since 1969. Um, so he was actually very successful politically working with the Republicans and kind of what he did was triangulation. Essentially, it would be Bill Clinton working with we're working with certain segments of the Republican Party against the Demo- against the liberal faction of the Democratic Party and the conservative faction of the Republican Party. And Newt Gingrich started working with Bill Clinton um, on trade issues, for example. And there was some talk there was maybe that perhaps there should have been some sort of a third party with Clinton and Gingrich essentially in charge of it. And then you had, you know, the Democrat, the Dick Gephardt Democrats on the one side and kind of the Jesse Helms type Republicans on the other side. But the ba- basically, this, the lesson is that you essentially, if you want to do something on your own for achieve for achievements, and you don't have you know the House or the Senate. The best thing to do is something on foreign policy, like Nixon. But if you do have both the House and the Senate, like Johnson did, you know you're able to to achieve a litany of uh, domestic legislation. Yeah, you could be known for that, or just start a war. Uh, you could be known for that too. It's <laughs> we can take on Grenada again. <laughs> <laughs> two out, best two out of three, a rubber match. <laughs> <laughs> Rich Rubino joining us. And th- some of the news that keeps coming out in New York, their governor, Andrew Cuomo, oh, yeah. not stepping down. I mean, it's one allegation after another, woman after woman. We even have some high profile cases today. There is even a photograph with a new uh, a new allegation of a woman feeling uncomfortable when he reached in and you know gave a kiss and she wasn't welcoming that. We have the problems with the nursing homes and that being investigated we got the preferential treatment with the testing and there's a lot of things coming out about andrew cuomo but he's not stepping down so politicians sometimes they try to weather the storm doesn't matter how much uh, evidence is piled up against them in cases like this and i'm sure there's a lot of cases like andrew cuomo where you would think there's enough to have him step down but they just decide not to yeah other than that mrs lincoln how was the play <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, this kind of this always reminds this is reminds me what happened back in 1996 back in Arkansas. So Jim Guy Tucker was the governor. He succeeded Bill Clinton, and um, he, he was involved in um, kind of tangentially in the Whitewater episode. It was kind of you know some very very Byzantine charges I won't get into, but um, he wasn't actually necessarily related to Bill Clinton. But Jim Guy Tucker um, was convicted. He was indicted. Then he was convicted. And essentially, in Arkansas law, um, if somebody is convicted, they cannot necessarily continue to serve as governor. So Tucker said that he was going to resign after his conviction. So there's so basically, so Mike Huckabee, who became uh, who, who was lieutenant governor, was ready to become governor. And the day that Huckabee was supposed to become governor, Tucker called him about 10 minutes before he was going to go down and take the oath of office and address the general assembly, and said that he's decided that he's seen a provision in the in the Arkansas Constitution that allows him to essentially go off on disability. In other words, now this is really confusing, but basically what he says, he, he insisted that he, was not, that he was not guilty, and there's actually a lot of arguments that perhaps he was not guilty, um, but he, he insisted that he, had a, that he had a case and that he was going to appeal it, 
in part because there was somebody on the there was somebody there was one of the jurors had married was married to somebody that Tucker had um, that Tucker had denied executive clemency to. So therefore, there was somewhat a conflict of interest. There should be a new trial. But Tucker said, "I'm not going to continue to serve." So what essentially is going to happen is I'm going to continue to be governor, but you're going to become acting governor. I mean, you're going to be acting governor rather than governor. So all these folks in the state legislature and the state general assembly in Arkansas are all waiting for Huckabee to be sworn in. And they find out this is going to happen. And there was really this uproar, this tumult. Um, This just could not happen. And the Democrats at the time controlled, but if you could believe it, both the House and the Senate began essentially the improperly began speaking with Huckabee about the possibility of there being impeachment and then a conviction so that Tucker could no longer could not become governor. So Tucker kind of saw the handwriting on the wall and essentially did actually um, resi- did actually resign that day. But this was essentially about four or five hours of just absolute tumult um, in the in the state of uh, in the state of Arkansas. And then Huckabee, of course, um, did land up becoming did land up becoming governor that day. But it was a very interesting episode. Imagine if social media was around back then and the things that would have been said online. Oh, my gosh. A quick moment like that makes uh, oh my gosh. Like, what pressure for something like that. It almost sounds like a standoff the way that you put it, like we're trying to follow along to Waco or something <laughs> along those lines. With oh, no. Oh, oh absolutely. And then you wonder, you know, you wonder what would have happened, you know, if he had actually if he had decided that he was going to if that he was going to stay in office, would he have had any chance and what would his kind of place in history be at that time, but obviously it's very hard if you are a governor of a state to ought to become somebody who actually does have to resign. I mean, that's going to be very hard to do politically. It's got to just be very hard to give up power. That's why you see oftentimes governors and presidents, for that matter, in their last days do things they hadn't done in the rest of their entire administration. They end up pardoning a lot of people. They put people on certain plum, plum jobs and certain commissions um, just so they can kind of use every single ounce of the power um, that they absolutely could use. But you know, Tucker's an interesting guy because he um, he had been a rival of Clinton's. They had run against each other in 1982. Um, Clinton had won that election. Then in 1990, Tucker had announced he was going to run for governor of Arkansas. And then Clinton said that, you know what, I'm going to run instead because he was going to run for re-election. Tucker thought he was going to run for president, so Tucker runs for lieutenant governor. Um, and then Clinton has to resign. Clinton ends up resigning um, to become president. Then Tucker becomes governor. And then Whitewater, which essentially was supposed to go after Bill Clinton, they found this tangential um, business deal that Tucker had made. So then Tucker's the one that lands up, you know, um, actually being convicted, being um, being having to resign and being convicted for this kind of tangential issue based on, you know, Bill Clinton. Very interesting. Um, very, in- very intriguing story. Okay, so going back to the Mount Rushmore things, we only got a couple <laughs> minutes in. Since it is March Madness and all the college teams are playing each other, let's say the final four were the four presidents in Mount Rushmore. So I'm going to give you the matchups, and you tell me who you think would ultimately be the better suited to stay on Mount Rushmore. So if we go from left to right, you have Washington and Jefferson. So if those two were face-to-face and only one could stay, which one would stay? Washington. Okay, and then you have Roosevelt and Lincoln of the two. Which one would stay? Lincoln. Okay, so now you have Washington and Lincoln in the finals. That's a pretty heavy <laughs> two to have to pick between the two. So if one could only be the triumphant winner between Washington and Lincoln on Mount Rushmore, which one would it be? You know, I would say Washington for this reason, because Lincoln is still very controversial in many parts of the country. Certainly, if you say his name, I'm sure in parts of South Carolina, there will be negative views. Washington... I don't think there would be many people who would have um, very much negative to say about to, to say necessarily about his presidency. There are some that would have negative things to say about him as a person, certainly owning, owning slaves. But 
as a president, I don't think there would be that much opposition unless there's maybe somebody who's still um, who still has animosity about the whiskey rebellion. But I doubt that's the case anymore. <laughs> they still talk <laughs> about it these days. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good uh, final four, the Mount Rushmore president. So or we could go through relegation like they do overseas when they play soccer and the lowest ranking teams get sent down to the minors and the highest minor <laughs> team gets sent up to the pros. There could be a relegation thing where they swap out president's faces based on the way things are going. Well, um, see, okay. I think they should do that with politicians. I think they should have, I think they should make it like professional sports. I think you should be able to trade them. I think you should be able to have them as free agents. I think that, you know, if once somebody's six year term is up, maybe they'll decide they're going to go somewhere else. Maybe they could have a vote in the state legislature about who's somebody that they should try to recruit. And maybe instead of having a pace, having a single paying everyone the same amount, maybe a state could say, you know what, we really want this guy from Alabama, so if Vermont wants this guy, say, you know what, we're going to give him $6 million to come here and be a senator for six years, and Louisiana proposes it, and um, then <laughs> potentially, you know, they could, they could do, they could cut, they could release people, and they could trade people, maybe trade a senator for two prospects, for two draft picks, or potentially for two members of the House of Representatives, you know, make them like professional sports, and I think young people would really follow the American political sphere. Yeah. Oh, I got traded to North Carolina. Oh, man. (laughs) I don't know where the tough state would be for something like that. All right. So if people wanted to look you up online, where can they go? Well, of course, they'd be rentals, too. So maybe once they're at once they're and once they um, can prove themselves for that, you know, last year, then they can maybe go to somewhere they really want to go. If, you know, Florida would want to pay more, for example. Yeah, like, um, by could, the way, like Romney, for example, like what grew up in Michigan, <laughs> went to Massachusetts. Now he's in Utah. So he's he's a journeyman politician. All yes, 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 he is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. Okay. Yes, absolutely. He's um, yeah, you're right. He grew up. He, so he grew up. He grew up in Michigan. Then he went to Harvard. And when he went to Harvard. Then he landed up. Um, he went to. He, he landed up when he went to Harvard uh, Business School. Then he landed up, you know, staying in Massachusetts based on that. And then he landed up back in Utah. But I hear that at the end of this term, when a six-year term is up, I've actually heard that Arkansas is seriously considering putting in a bid for him. Trade. <laughs> All right, uh, politic-geek.com, the book American Politics on the Rocks, and you can look up Rich Rubino online. Thank you so much for coming on to KMOX tonight. Yes, thank you so much. And he joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. This is Overnight America KMOX. Overnight America with Ryan Recker is sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Rich Rubino is so fun, isn't he? Wow, we got a great guest lined up for the next hour. And I'm excited to tell you about it because it's a story about, as a child... He was kidnapped by his dad. He was told that his mom died. Eventually, his dad, being neglectful, uh, left him. And he grew up in orphanages and had a rough start to his life with a lot of unanswered questions until he was an adult. And he hired a private detective to figure out what exactly happened there. And he got some answers to find out things like his mom was still alive. Ed Hagem is going to join us for the next hour to talk about his journey. And it's a book called On the Road Less Traveled. Really looking forward to having a conversation with Ed. A lot of emotions, I'm sure. And I think you'll find it fascinating, too. Right after the break, and a look at your news and weather, too, on Overnight America KMOX. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 
Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 